0: Something interesting happened with the ransomware that infected MoveIt earlier this year. MoveIt by itself is a managed file transfer software product from a company called Ipswich. MoveIt encrypts the files and uses FTP or SFTP to transfer large quantities of data. So it's used by a large number of organizations around the world. But this ransomware attack? as of August, suggests that it compromised. Over 60 million people, uh, that's been breached. And another estimate, it's been suggested that over a thousand organizations have been compromised. Here's the thing. None of the affected organizations have been hit with ransomware. In other words, the organizations didn't have their servers and terminals shut down with ransomware notices. No, instead, the attackers moved directly to extortion, demanding money in exchange for not putting the stolen data online. So who's responsible? Evidence suggests that the ransomware group known as CLOP may be responsible. And it's been suggested that CLOP may have been sitting on this Move-It exploit for years. Again, why now? As we'll hear in this episode of The Hacker Mind. Ransomware operators have shaken up their operations lately. Instead of ransoming the data first and then extorting the victims into paying to keep that exfiltrated data from being leaked, they're skipping the first step and going straight to the extortion. And the services used for that? Well, they're all available on the dark web. In a moment, I'll talk with a researcher who spends his days on the dark web. I hope you'll stick around. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from the makers of Mayhem Security. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi and in this episode, I'm discussing ransomware, data extortion, and how the dark web plays into all of that with somebody who practically lives on the dark web. we're all fascinated by what may or may not be happening on the dark web. I mean, it's dark, right? We're not supposed to know what's going on, or at least see very clearly what's going on. Yet, from time to time, I do check in with people whose job it is to monitor what goes on there.
1: Yeah, uh, my name is Manny. Uh, At least that's what everyone calls me uh, at work. Um, I am an associate manager at the um, Accenture Cyber Threat Intelligence Dark Web Reconnaissance Team.
0: Like any major organization, Accenture has different business units and teams. The cyber threat intelligence dark web reconnaissance team sounds really specific and pretty cool.
1: Yeah, so um, we're one of several specialized units within the wider practice. Um, but essentially, our mandate is to go on the uh, on the deep and dark web, um, providing intelligence and quote unquote weather forecasts uh, about what's happening. Essentially, trying to look for uh, threats and trends, and um, warning clients about who's targeting who with what tools and what kind of capabilities.
0: So, let's start out by defining by what we mean by the dark web for someone who may not know.
1: Sure. So, um, I mean, at the very strictest definition, there are obviously very big difference between deep, dark, and clear net, but from a criminal uh, perspective, they all overlap. Some of these criminal forums are hosted on, on, uh, on clearnet sites, and some of them are in tour domains. Some of them are in messaging platforms. Um, but for the, in, for the intent of intelligence, it's part of the dark web.
0: Again, for someone who doesn't necessarily know, the clear web is what you get when you Google. And when you go into a password-protected area, well, that's another level of deep web. And then there's the dark web, which is what you need a Tor or a I2P browser to get into.
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: So what are some of the threats, say, that enterprises need to worry about from the dark web? Criminals operate there all the time. So why would an organization need to pay attention to the dark web on its own?
1: I mean, um, unfortunately, you have to pay attention uh, to the dark web Um I think more and more uh, events, cyber events that that businesses and enterprises are facing can be tied directly back to the dark web in one form or another. You know, it can be something as specific as a a set of credentials uh, or network access being sold, or it can be something more vague, like uh, a new and emerging um, threat or technique that's being sold. Um, Our opinion, and I know I'm biased, is that nobody can afford to not look in this space because you're missing out on a really big opportunity to posture and prepare.
0: Manny mentioned forums, and my understanding is when you do that type of surveillance on the dark web, you're basically listening to as many forums as possible.
1: Um, Yeah, um, I mean, there there are various degrees of it. Um, There are some uh, forums where... uh, you know you can be a casual observer and then there are some places where you have to be uh, more active in the discussions um because otherwise you'll get booted out um and th- one of the benefits are that the criminal underground used to be very centralized um, and that meant you had all types of crime in one place think like alphabet um that was hard because uh, you don't want to be active in a forum that also deals with um for example human trafficking uh, but now that the forums are more segmented, cybercrime is its own thing, um, carding fraud is its own thing, uh, you know, you, you, can, you can have more liberties on these forums.
0: So as a researcher, how would you interact in the dark web forum? In other words, I know you'd probably have a burner laptop, a VPN, Tor, and a burner account that you'd use. But are they transactional? Do you need to contribute something to the forum to be admitted or taken seriously there?
1: You need to have OPSEC. Uh, If you don't have operational security in place, uh, you have no business to be um, on uh, these forums. uh, in terms of do you need to be transactional? There are some places you need to do, uh, and obviously um, to the to the, the the degree that we can, uh, it's not good to uh, to fund crime. So we avoid doing that uh, entirely. Um, but there are some places where if you've been there long enough, you can you can get around the transaction barrier.
0: So it's reputational, who you know, and how long you've been around.
1: Reputational, exactly. Um, And uh, lucky for us, um, some of my colleagues have been in the business longer than I have, and have ensured that there are forum accounts that date back, uh, you know, more than a decade.
0: Okay, so Manny's been doing this for over six years, and he must have some stories about some of the investigations that he's done thus far.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I, I've, I've I've I was lucky. I joined this uh, field around six and a half years ago, um, and in that time, I think uh, the primary thing is that the, cr- the criminal underground has become more professionalized. Uh, when I joined, it was sort of disjointed, and uh, it was it was difficult to know what was a scam and what was a real service. But these guys are they want to make money, and they know the best way to do that is to build it like a legitimate business. So some of these criminal outlets operating on the dark web are more like an early stage tech startup in how they operate than a a cyber criminal.
0: I've heard this before. Criminal hackers, they work nine to five. They work Monday through Friday. They have HR departments, finance, even engineering. And we know this because shortly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, members of the Conti ransomware organization who disagreed, with that invasion, published emails and chats which revealed the internal structure of the criminal organization in fine detail. These ransomware organizations are essentially startups in a world of organized crime. As for what they produce, they produce services for other franchisees, receiving a cut of all of their crimes as well.
1: Yeah, so uh, ransomware is obviously uh, on everybody's mind. Um, and um, one service that uh, is very interesting is what's called initial access brokering uh, it's a it's a threat actor that uh, specializes in in getting access to an enterprise network and then reselling that to the highest bidder uh, that is one of the main economies currently operating on the darknet and in my personal opinion um without these initial access brokers ransomware and data extortion couldn't have scaled to the point that we're currently seeing
0: Info stealers. So this is where somebody uses, say, my creds to get into my company's internal network, and then from there bootstrap their way into areas such as finance.
1: Yeah, it can be it can be a set of stolen credentials. It can also be, um, you know, some threat actors, uh, some of these uh, initial access brokers, they are highly, highly specialized. They will have their own um, one day or zero day exploit targeting some sort of uh, VPN provider. They'll use that uh, as a way to compromise several companies and then they'll resell that access.
0: So Manny mentioned zero days and I often hear that you don't want to use a zero day. You want to go for the low hanging fruit first. And then the zero days, so it's something that you want to save because they're quite expensive, or have they become less expensive?
1: No, they. Uh, on the other, like no, they're, they're. It depends on where you're looking, I should say. Um, we recently saw a zero day offered for sale on a key underground forum for two and a half million euros. Um, that's about as expensive as I've ever seen it on the dark web. Um, and then you have a zero day targeting some uh, CRM provider that nobody has heard of selling for $300. So you've got the spectrum.
0: Okay. But in general, would Manny agree that withholding a zero day as long as possible is still the thing to do?
1: A hundred percent. I agree with with you Uh, because there's just not, uh, there's no reason to do it, right? Um, If you can get away with using a set of credentials that you either stole yourself or you purchased for $10 on the underground, why would you burn your most valuable asset?
0: So given that Manny's on the dark web, I imagine he's seeing a lot of cutting edge info stealers.
1: Yeah, so um, info stealers uh, really is one of the, the places where the dark web is innovating the most. You know, I, I like to say that what we're seeing is the uh, info stealer 3.0. It's the, the new age of info stealers. Um, you know, if you if you think like about an info stealer from two years ago, it was designed to target the individual, their banking apps, their Bitcoin addresses. And um, the info stealer of today is designed to target enterprises. By targeting um, overlays in multi-factor authentication, targeting uh, targeting uh, corporate applications, um, so the Infostealer is rapidly becoming uh, the go-to tool from initial access brokers to data extortionists to ransomware groups as a tool of entry.
0: Well, I'm wondering what else are we seeing in the segmented forums that exist there? What might be the most pressing threat coming from the dark web today?
1: Oh, that's a hard question uh, to answer. I can, I can tell you so many different things. Uh, we're seeing the infostealer, We're seeing um, data extortion. We're seeing deep fakes. So it, it's very hard to say, but in my personal opinion, um, the biggest blind spots for businesses is augmented social engineering.
0: Okay, let's break that apart. Augmented social engineering i'm not really sure what that is
1: sorry yes so um augmented social engineering is sort of the 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 current state of social engineering where dark web criminals are buying tools services uh, and accesses on the dark web to enhance their social engineering ploy i can give you an example the most famous group that has done this is is lapsus Um, right what they did is they would buy a set of credentials on one of the big marketplaces they would get access to, um, in this case, it was a Slack account, and then they would write to the tech stack saying, hey, I'm sorry, I lost my phone at a party. Can you reset MFA? And then that way they were inside um, the the network. But the cool thing here is that that ploy was so successful because it originated from a trusted internal account. It wasn't an outside spoof. Uh, And that's what I mean by augmented social engineering, where these threat actors are taking the data, the tools, and the services that you can buy on the underground and and enhancing social engineering.
0: So oftentimes when dealing with criminal hackers, they're not very sophisticated deep down. They're lazy, they're script kiddies, and they just grab stuff here and there to mount their attacks. But what I'm hearing from Manny is that there's a real up level in the sophistication of some of these attacks.
1: Yeah, that's correct. I mean, uh, as, as I said in the beginning, the, the criminal underground has become professionalized to a very, very high degree. Um, but also, I don't think you should, uh, I don't think people should necessarily write off the, uh, the dumb script, Kitty, because uh, again, going back to lapses.
0: Lapsus. It turns out this was a group of teenagers in the United Kingdom, but just using social engineering, they managed to criminally hack and, and breach Microsoft and Okta, the identity management company. These kids were doing it for laughs. They weren't even charging for the data. They just posted it online for
1: free. We knew uh, we've worked on, on uh, incidents where uh, a lapsus affiliated threat came into the environment. Um, again, using, using augmented social engineering um, moved uh, deeper into uh, the network, but because they are who they are, they didn't charge, there was no ransom, there was no chance for the, for the, uh, for the enterprise to actually do anything about it. They just stole the data, deleted it from their servers and disclosed it for free. So the problem with these script kitties is that they can be unpredictable, right? Even if you as a business want to pay a ransom, you're not sure you're going to get the chance, depending on who it is that gets inside of your, your systems.
0: And there's certainly a number of examples where people pay and they don't exactly get the decryption key or the decryption key doesn't work.
1: Yeah, exactly. That, that's that's another issue. But to be honest, that's as big as an issue for the ransomware group as, as it is for the victim, because if their decryption key doesn't work, nobody's going to pay the next ransomware.
0: They do have that second step of disclosing the data if they've managed to exfiltrate it.
1: Correct. And I, I would actually say that uh, based on the research that I'm doing now and based on my, my uh, dealings with our incident response team, uh, that second step is becoming the first step, right? If you look at the recent club attack against uh, MoveIt, um, as far as I'm aware, there's 349 confirmed victims, not one of them has suffered a known ransomware attack. It's a pure mass data exfiltration event. Um, I have my own theories and my own uh, sort of research on why that is happening. Um, but that's the, the, the second step of data exfiltration is becoming the first step.
0: So then are they keeping the ransomware for like a second wave?
1: Yeah, some some, uh, some groups are entirely dropping the ransomware component. Um, I mean, it's it's cheaper to not have a crypto locker. Um, it's easier. You don't need to have technical as technical capabilities. Uh, and it's just as effective, right? I think there was a recent survey by some CISOs who said that increasingly, they're not as concerned about ransomware because they know how to deal with it. Um, they can segment their networks and all that kind of stuff. But no matter what, you don't want your sensitive corporate data disclosed on the underground. So the exfiltration component and the disclosure component is just as big, if not a bigger concern, than the actual ransomware, depending on the maturity of the client.
0: So in some ways, Manny's suggesting that CLOP really isn't interested in ransomware. It's just the data exfiltration.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that, that the current operations of CLOP is more akin to a data extortion event exclusively without ransomware.
0: So I'm wondering if maybe this is a new category, pure data extortion?
1: It is, a, yeah. I mean, we, we classify it as a separate category, but it is a little bit muddled because a lot of the former ransomware operators are moving to become data extortionists. Um, so, so, you know, there's a little bit of, of the blurring of, of the boundaries there. But, I mean, one of the benefits for these groups is that we've seen the leaks from Conti, right? Where yes. um, their, their locker uh, got leaked and that allows everyone and their mother to reverse engineer it and protect them. If you don't have a crypto locker, um, you're less likely to, or you're more likely as a criminal to be resilient to uh, to the volatility of these toxins, right?
0: So the original crypto locker was spread in September of 2013, and then it was shut down in May 2014. So any new versions, well, they're variations on the original. Ransomware gangs are pretty lazy. They're in it for the money. And now, according to Manny, they don't even go through that process of developing their own crypto lockers because they're just going for the exfiltration. Still, I'm interested. How many crypto lockers have been shared among these groups? And are they unique or are they proprietary?
1: Oh, there's a there's a there's quite a, a big degree of overlap. Every single time that we're seeing a crypto locker that's been leaked and a new group emerges, a lot of it can be traced back, right? So um, I think... I can't remember i'll check this for you but i'm pretty sure that the when babuk was a thing uh, back in 2021 um their their crypto locker was entirely based on the leaked conti locker of the time so there is there is quite a, a big degree of overlap
0: i'm wondering if manny's seeing anything that i call smashing grabs where they encrypt only the first eight bytes out of the file and not really exfiltrate the data
1: um i mean I'm fairly sure that we are seeing some of them. I have to check with my incident response uh, colleagues, but it's it's becoming less of a thing uh, simply because they know the ransom is primarily delivered because of the extortion of the data. And if I may, I just want to add to a point on that, right? So an interesting consequence of this is that a lot of ransomware groups were apprehensive. They had a moral notion in the sense that they would, for example, not put ransomware on a hospital or... As I'm sure you're aware, after the dark side attack against Colonial Pipeline, a lot of ransomware groups went out and said, we don't want to target oil and gas or uh, infrastructure companies. But if you don't have a ransomware component, that moral notion has been lifted. So because of this focus on pure data extortion, we've seen a rise in the targeting of healthcare, for example, which was previously a fairly shielded industry.
0: So the nuance here with Colonial was they were in the business systems. They were looking to do some data exfiltration. The fact that Colonial shut down the pipeline and had repercussions, well, that was just out of due diligence. Except now I'm not sure that they were exfiltrating the data, that they were actually targeting the infrastructure instead.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, But what I mean is that because of Colonial Pipeline, Mm -hmm. A lot of other ransomware groups went ahead and said, oh, shit, we don't want this level of law enforcement scrutiny on us. Let's just drop ransomware against um, against oil pipelines or critical national infrastructure because it simply got so heated. And then after
0: Colonial, the response from the United States government was to put a reward on any information leading to the arrest of the people responsible for that attack. That probably killed some of the activity in that space.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was quite interesting Uh, in those days afterwards, we saw the key forums that was catering to the ransomware groups at the time, they flat out banned ransomware on the marketplaces. And to this day, some of them still have that ban in place.
0: Right. And it's interesting that these ransomware groups have franchisees. And one of them attacked Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, Ontario, a hospital for sick kids over the winter holidays. Here's the CBC.
1: And the Hospital for Sick Children says it's dealing with a cybersecurity incident that's affecting several network systems, including some of their phone lines.
0: SickKids says a system failure called the Code Gray went into effect on Sunday night, prompting the activation of the Incident Command Center. The hospital says patient care is unaffected and there's no evidence that personal or health information has been impacted. Chopper 24 is above the hospital for us this morning, giving us that bird's eye view. Officials say third-party experts have now been called in to help resolve the situation. Then a few days later, this. There are sick kids' hospitals recovering from a second cybersecurity incident in recent weeks. This after being offered a solution to its problem from the very people that carry out these kind of attacks. Brian, Here we have a ransomware gang apologizing for one of its franchisees. Here's the decryption key. And we're not going to do that anymore. Promise.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the ransomware as a service model and now the data extortion as a service model is entirely reliant on as I said earlier, initial access brokers, as well as willing participant who wants to, um, to, who wants to go into a franchise model with you on the underground.
0: Right. But even large corporations that are legit, they can't always control what their franchisees are doing all the time.
1: Exactly. And we've seen numerous mistakes made on that behalf. We've also seen some franchisees thinking they targeted one entity and um posting the data on the data leak site and then it turns out it was a different entity altogether and uh, in this case it was lockbit they have to go out and say sorry this was the wrong entity and and you know kind of repair that reputation a bit
0: and yeah reputation there's a bit of branding going on here there are these organizations that aren't so much in the shadows as they used to be they actually have logos they actually have names
1: Absolutely. I mean they're they're competing everywhere they can. They're um they have measurement contests about who has the uh who's got the fastest encryptor, um, who's got the best looking data leak sites, uh, who's got the most amounts of affiliates, all this kind of stuff is is a competition.
0: So where do you see that? Is that that's in the dark web where they're competing against each other?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's often um ever so often there will be a uh a report coming out from a, a white hat uh, solution, some sort of, of in, in uh, infosec security company will say, this, this locker was this fast, uh, this ransomware was this fast, and they will proliferate that wildly on the underground uh, based on whether they're on top or uh, at the bottom.
0: So Manny mentioned deep fakes, and I'm beginning to think it's like manipulating a political candidate and getting them to say something that's rather embarrassing or something they obviously wouldn't say. Are those deep fakes?
1: Uh, I mean, that is a great example of a deep fake, uh, and I think at a societal scale, that is where deep fakes uh, pose the biggest uh, risk. Um, at a individual enterprise um, focus. Um, Deepfakes are a problem because um, they can be used as a a novel way uh, to get into corporate uh, networks. We've seen uh, one case where um, there was a a voice deepfake that was successful in resetting a password um, just through the uh, biometric identification of a voice. Um, And then, of course, you can also use it as a way to enhance the chance that your victim is clicking on a link or is uh, is. You know, taking their uh, the communication outside of whatever controlled environment the, uh, the enterprise has.
0: So the biometrics is rather interesting to me. So somebody's voice, when you call a bank, they often use that to authenticate you so they know it's really you based on your prior conversations. But with a deep fake, they're just manipulating the words around from a recording.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have the hard data on how successful this is, but we do know of, of cases where it has successfully worked. So unfortunately, The the re-scrambling of words, if even from some of the free tools that are out there, uh, has been successful in doing so.
0: Wow. I would think that there would be like, you know, editing marks or things like that in the audio file that would be discernible to an AI listening to it. But I guess we're not quite there yet.
1: I mean, I don't think you're wrong. I think you're absolutely right, and, and that is the case. And I also th- think that the vast majority of these ploys will be um, will be mitigated uh, before they they become a thing. But um, the fact that it has been successful is telling. And also, um, you know, from a theoretical perspective, anyways, there is the idea that anything we do to mitigate deepfakes, deepfake creators will then take turn against us and use it to enhance the next generation.
0: So we briefly touched upon OT as something new in the dark web. I asked Manny for his definition of operational technology.
1: Internally, anyways, we have uh, various definitions, but what we've been looking at, we've been looking at um, uh, SCADA systems, uh, critical national infrastructure, uh, oil and gas companies, um, energy utilities, energy providers, uh, and the, um, the, the, the granular level computers that they are running on. Think PLCs uh, and and stuff like that.
0: Right. So I want to know more about operational technology and how it's being talked about or used in the dark web.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm lucky. I have some some really extraordinary colleagues in this field who's been dealing with this kind of space um, for a long time. And um, but not from a dark web perspective. Um, and sort of talking to them is what inspired uh, me and a colleague to start looking at how does this um, operational technology space overlap with dark web threat actors. Um, The first thing we saw is um, for the first time in the seven years that I've been doing this, six and a half years, um, all three major categories of dark web threat actors, financial, political, ideological are, have elevated intent on targeting OT. Uh, And a lot of that can be tied back to the uh, Russia-Ukraine war. Um, At a very high glance, um, the financial threat actors, they wanna target OT because they can sell that for more money. Uh, the ideological threat actors um, they want to target OT because they get blockbuster headlines in the news. Right, uh, anytime one of these um, uh, DDoS activist groups manage to take offline, um, you know, some sort of oil website, or even if they've managed to actually take off some some production facilities, that that makes international news uh, in a way that a DDoS attack doesn't do anymore. Um, and then the political threat actors are targeting OT uh, in support of Russia. So so that's what we're seeing at a very very high level.
0: I would think the diversity of operational technology would help protect it. It's not homogenous. I mean, every device has its own programmable logic controller or PLC or RTOS. It's not at all like having a homogenous operating system like Linux or Windows or Mac.
1: Um, Yeah, and I think you're right. I think um, the diversity is maybe shielding it from a systemic, organized campaign. But um, the diversity is also making it easier for some threat threat actor out there to find a target that hasn't been protected as well.
0: So I guess Manny's starting to see some PLCs are going to be more of a target.
1: The most recent reports that I've written up on have targeted uh, PLCs, programmable logic controllers, um, and they've targeted RTMs. Um, I, or yeah, I believe it was, there was a group that uh, recently claimed to have done the first ever ransomware slash Viber attack against uh, an RTM in uh, Belarusia.
0: So on a physical level, the attacks that we've seen in the OT space, well, they've been at companies that deal with like, say oil and gas. I'm thinking of Shamoon, but it could be something like escalators going down. It could be something physical in other ways, right?
1: It could be for sure. Um, at the moment, from again, from a pure dark web perspective, the focus is primarily on um, utilities and energy providers simply because um, that's where they can make money and that's where they get the headlines. But you're absolutely right that should they choose to branch out and should they continue down this path, we can see uh, other things uh, also being hit, you know, uh, elevators, uh, escalators, um, various traffic lights, that kind that, that kind of activity. But from a dark web perspective, that's still in the future.
0: So staying in the future for a moment, Manny could see something like a smart building completely held hostage in a DDoS attack.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, if you make a building uh, sufficiently smart, someone out there will find a way to make it dumb and charge you uh, to restore it.
0: That's great phrasing. I, I really like that. I find the OT space to be very interesting because, again, it's not something that everybody's talking about. People aren't thinking about their elevators or whatever. I mean, we have Stuxnet as an example of an OT attack, but that's still more than a decade ago. And it doesn't seem to be as prevalent today as we might have seen in other attacks on that level.
1: I think that's right. I think the the only big one I can think of is the Triton malware that was discovered in um, Saudi Arabia. And and some of those wiper attacks affiliated with that. Uh, but I mean, you're right, and I, I I 100% agree with your sentiment that OT will be uh, definitely on the radar from a lot more threat actors. Um, but as you were touching upon earlier, uh, you know these guys at the moment stick to what works and the low-hanging fruit. So while they can, why not just blackmail an enterprise the same way that's worked for the last four years? And when that resource dries up because businesses go passwordless or whatever other reasons we have, then we're looking at branching out is my opinion so i if i if i was a betting man i would say ot was going to emerge on dark web in a serious manner over within the next three years
0: so this is interesting it's because we're connecting more ot to the internet and making it more accessible or is it that we've run the gambit of like well we've done linux we've done windows and well we haven't tried this before it's something brand new
1: I think it's both. So there's definitely and right, a lot of these actors are opportunistic. So simply by making more OT internet facing, we will uh, be exposing ourselves to more opportunistic threat actors. That's like a it's, it's a correlation that you cannot avoid.
0: So are there any stories that Many can share around some of the topics we've discussed.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, so, some of the some of the, the research that I find very interesting uh, at the moment is we we, as you're aware, um, all ransomware groups uh, worth their salt will have a data leak component to their operations. Um, because there are so many ransomware groups, because there's so much data leaked, there is an extraordinary amount of sensitive, high-fidelity corporate data available on the underground, um, and typically businesses. Uh, only are aware of their own compromise. They have a blind spot for a, uh, a you know, a trusted supplier, either upstream or downstream. If you take that data and everything that that data can give a um, social engineering, uh, engineering threat actor and you pair it with the deepfakes capabilities, uh, then you have a situation where both the message and the messenger are so heightened that it'll become very, very difficult for people and enterprises to know what's real and what's not real. Um, but just to give you a little snippet, right, so if you're talking about we're developing this space, right, we've seen an 850 percent, actually that's wrong, we've seen a over 1000 percent increase over the last two years in the targeting of Mac OS by dark web predators. And this ties to your point of Linux, Windows has been done, Linux has been done, uh, right now, you know, we're kind of in the space of targeting boot kits and then what's the next thing that's that's highly targeting? It's it's macOS and we've seen the criminal underground adjust um, accordingly.
0: So Mac OS is interesting. I'm wondering if there's now a backlash against all that advertising that was done that, well, you just don't get viruses with Mac OS. Actually you do. And now there's vulnerabilities attacking Mac OS directly.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think an average user has a, a false sense of security if they're on a Mac compared to what we're seeing on a daily basis.
0: Still, from an enterprise perspective, Macs are better in the sense that they're not centralized as much on the network. In fact, Mac laptops are pretty isolated.
1: I, I mean, I don't think you're wrong there. I think that is right, that in terms of like, if you're an enterprise, where would you want an attack to be directed? Probably still uh, your Mac user. But the problem is that um all it really takes is one user with some sensitive data or some sensitive credentials and you can move away from that initial compromise Um, and obviously the enterprise adoption of mac os is is increasing um every year um so so there are more victims coming out or more potential victims coming out um that has a more central role
0: so i guess what i'm hearing is maybe everybody should be switching to linux
1: I mean, uh, you know, uh, as with anything cyber, it's it's a, it's always a cost benefit on 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 ease of ease of use and security. Um, I personally wouldn't wouldn't want that because I'm not a, a a command line warrior, um, so I'm perfectly happy on a Mac. But um, yeah, from a theoretical perspective, let's say you're right.
0: I'd really like to thank Thomas Manny Wilkin for coming on the show and talking about the dark web. And I do look forward to talking to him again about the future of his Mac OS research. Again, these are areas, whether it be OT or Mac OS, that haven't gotten a lot of research and haven't gotten a lot of discussion, and they probably need it. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon, and tell me what you like and even what you don't. Hey, I have some great conversations coming up with the rise of bots, the threat from China and Vietnam, and more research on the dark web and ransomware. Subscribe today. The Hacker Mind is brought to you every two weeks, commercial free by For All Secure. The makers of Mayhem, an application security testing solution you can try for free at mayhem.security. For The Hacker Mind, I'm Robert Famosi.